Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Hi friends. Today is going to be great. I have Pete right on the podcast. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to share Pete with you. Pete and I kind of talked about everything. At the end of today's podcast, we do a rapid fire. We talk about SLD eligibility, behavior, and inclusion. You are not going to want to miss Pete's straight up quick answers on those three topics. Pete and I also spend a lot of time talking about communication. And before we hop into this episode, I wanted to direct you to a free resource that I have on my website. It's at www.ashleybarlowco.com backslash resources. I have a freebie called 10 Super Simple Tips for Effective Communication at the IEP Table. A lot of the things that Pete talks about in today's podcast are listed in this super simple freebie. There's also a freebie on the same page that talks about preparing for an IEP meeting. You should look at this checklist every single year before your annual meeting and any other time that your team is meeting. And finally, I just want to spend a second talking to you about a paid resource that's on my website. It's the Inclusion Workshop. If you head over to ashleybarlowco.com backslash shop, you will see an Inclusion Workshop that will knock your socks off. It's on sale today, Tuesday, November 17th, 2020, for one more day. It'll go up to $49 on Thursday. I really hope you'll download it. It is all things inclusion. I worked super hard on this. I'm really excited to deliver it, and it really lines up nicely with what Pete brings in this podcast. Let's hop into the podcast interview. You're going to love it. Welcome to the Special Education Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I am so excited to introduce you to our guest today. I'm going to be talking to Pete Wright. Pete is an attorney who represents children with special education needs. Pete is one of the few esteemed attorneys to have given oral argument in front of the United States Supreme Court in a special education case. In 1993, Pete argued the Florence County School District 4 versus Shannon Carter case, which resulted in a victory for Pete's client, Shannon Carter. Pete also contributed to a brief in another Supreme Court case, Schaefer versus Wiest, which was in collaboration with the National Council on Disability. If that's not enough, Pete trained over 200 employees in the Office of Civil Rights on the interrelationship between IDEA, Section 504, and the ADA. Of course, the way most of my audience probably knows Pete is by his phenomenal books. I have two here. The rest of them are out on loan, but this is from Emotions to Advocacy, which Pete wrote with his wife, Pam Wright, as well as Rights Law, Special Education Law, which Pete also has written with his wife, Pam Wright. 
Of course, there's also Wright's Law, No Child Left Behind, which was written in 2003, Wright's Law, Idea 2004. Uh, there's Wright's Law, All About IEPs from 2009, Wright's Law, All About Tests and Assessments, which I probably open twice a week here in my special education law practice. And then he's got a year in review series with all of the case law. He is a, um, an avid reader of case law in all the different federal districts. Um, and Pete has co-authored all of those books with his wife, Pam Wright. I refer clients to Pete's website, rightslaw.com on a near daily basis for organized detailed information on all things special education. I first met Pete and Pam at the Institute of Special Education um, Advocacy Clinic, which is abbreviated ISEA, at William & Mary's Law School back in 2016. This is a week-long training for parents, attorneys, and advocates that really helped to transform and launch my special education law practice. I'm so grateful for Pete and Pam and their many contributions to the special education community, and I'm really excited to welcome Pete to our podcast today. Pete, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Ashley. It's a great pleasure to be here with you today. And I am so impressed with what you have accomplished since you took the ISEA program. That was what, three or four years ago you took the program? And, and since then, you, you have become the guru in social marketing, getting information out to parents. It's absolutely user-friendly, easy to understand, and taking difficult concepts and simplifying them so that they really make sense. I'm very impressed with, with the, the, the podcast that I have uh, of yours that I have listened to and your interviews of others. Uh, just awesome. Uh, really, really, just great job. Very impressed. I uh, thank you for having me today. Thank you, Pete. That is the ultimate compliment. You know, it's such an honor to get to deliver this information to um, families that really need it. And I think, you know, you kind of set the bar and you set the bar very high in getting information out to um, parents in an easy to follow manner in kind of layman's terms. And um, yeah, so I really- Well, I'm gonna share with you one thing that I really, really like that you do that is not done by many attorneys. And what you do is you put the information out there so that parents can understand it and you empower them so that they don't feel the need to call their lawyer and ask them, what does the law say about this or the law say about that? Because you've already explained it and you show them how to go forward with the information. And that was whole my, my whole theme as, as a, an attorney representing parents, to empower parents. It's a slower process. It takes a little longer, but in the end, it saves time for everyone and the parents and the kids benefit down the road because a lot of these issues in special ed come up again later on when the kids are in the 20s and have nothing to do with public schools. They have to do with dealing with other entities uh, and, and they, they, they duplicate themselves and the lessons that you teach them how to deal with this and do, deal with that will, will serve them for many years. So I, I, your approach is very similar to mine. I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had, thank you for that. And I had never really thought about it that way, but you're right. By learning how to advocate for your child in school, you're learning that advocacy for your child for their entire life. And then you probably take it even a step forward because you model advocacy, which then helps your child become a really great self-advocate. Um, and that's, that's really what it's all about. I'm constantly, I tell my clients, 
I advise them under the shadow of the law, because that's really all I know is the legal framework. And I'm constantly thinking about what a court would do or what an administrative law would ju judge would do. Um, and I think there's a framework, you know, there's always kind of the best alternative and the worst alternative. And so long as we kind of hit someplace between those two parameters, um, and my client satisfied and the school satisfied, then I consider it a win. Um, but you have to start with the framework of the law. So I appreciate that. That's that's really what it's all about. <laughs> Very good. Well, I, I like the way you do it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Pete. I learned from the best. So <laughs> this this is the session and throwing compliments back and forth at each that's other. <laughs> We could go all day doing this, but we can forget the audience. It's you and I will throw compliments yeah. at each other. <laughs> we'll just have a little compliment fest. You know, Pete, what I what I you you could go really deep into any topic in special education, but um, and and I certainly would welcome to have you back to do that on any topic, really. Um, but what I'd like to do today is to kind of hit some hot topics. And so, you know, as we prepared for today's podcast, I gave you lots of different topics from lots of different places. And the reason I did that was because I feel like my audience could really benefit from some of those kind of Pete Wright one-liners. You know, you've got these great little paragraphs or page-long um, dissertations that you can give on some hot topics. And I find myself having been to ISEA and then the alumni track in ISEA and having dinner with you a couple of times at COPA and stuff. I oh, you took the training at Columbus too. You took that one day training program. It's a one program. day training in Columbus, which I would highly recommend to any, um, to any attorney, advocate, parent that's out there, school staff, anybody. Um, and so in doing all of those things, I've kind of got this like log of Pete Wright um, one-liners that I give to clients all the time. And so I thought it would be nice to have kind of your overview on some hot topics. So um, we've got six or seven questions that we're going to tick through. It's not going to be super sequential, um, but I think let's get started, Pete. Sounds good. So the thing that I um, probably talk about most often when I'm looking for a Pete Wrightism is the letter to a stranger concept, because I really, as you indicated, I really like to empower my clients to, um, to represent their child, to advocate for their child themselves, and to do it in an organized and efficient manner um, that is within the framework of the law and that's kind of always preparing for the concept that we might have to go to court. Um, and so I would love it if you could kind of walk people through that letter to a stranger um, and what that concept is. Already, the letter to the stranger concept uh, came into being back in the days of CompuServe and the source. That's before uh, this thing called Windows really came into being. It was right in the early years of, of Windows 3.1 and uh, internet service providers. And on CompuServe was an organization called the ADD Forum. And there was a parent, uh, and this was after it had the Supreme Court Carter case in 93. It was within, just I guess a, a few months after that, a, a parent sent me an email with a letter that they had written to the school uh, and they wanted me to give it its, uh, give them its, its blessing that it was really a, a work of art and it was just a beautiful letter and, and so forth. And instead, my reaction was, oh my gosh, 
This parent has shot themselves in the foot with a machine gun and thinks they're doing the right thing. And they don't realize that they're going to close the door to services for their kids if this letter gets hand delivered. Uh, and uh, on the form was a professional author by the name of Janie Bowman, who was an expert in ADD out in um, uh, Olympia, Washington. And so she and I got together and we ended up having, a, uh, I guess, several telephone conference calls uh, with the father and went through the story with him and, and got a good handle on the facts and had him rewrite his, his letter in a way that was a chronological narrative telling a story and did not blame or finger point. Uh, and instead, uh, it, it generated uh, feelings of empathy uh, within the, the reader. And he then redid the letter and used that letter and, and I, I hear back from him, even, that was way back years ago. I hear from him even uh, every so often, about once a year or so, I'll get an email from him telling me about what a great, what his son is doing now. His son went on and became an expert in computers. And he had done something with their computers in the school. That was why he got in trouble. He had hacked into the school's computers and you know, changed people's grades and things like that. This again, you know, this is, this is the, the early 90s. <laughs> so it was right. exceptional. <laughs> um, and, um, what we did then, Janie being a professional writer and I, I knowing about law, she uh, created a, a web page or an article actually that was called The Letter to the Stranger. And she took his first letter and then the second letter um, and developed a story that both letters are lost in the street and uh, in, in an envelope and found by a stranger. And the stranger reads that first letter. And by the end of that first letter, the stranger has no use for the father, feels lots of uh, uh, animosity toward the father and the child, and is, is, is really uh, ready to help the school expel the kid for life and so forth. And then uh, the stranger puts the letter down and, and, uh, uh, and then picks up the second letter and, you know, what's this? And reads it and says, oh my gosh, and by the end of the, of the second letter, the whole thing has totally shifted. So the, 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 the thing is that I, I tell parents, you, you have to write a letter and assume that it was lost in the street and found by a stranger who knows nothing about special ed law or the difference between IDA 504, ADA, um, or the difference between autism and learning disabilities. It's a blank tablet and your job is within the stranger to create empathy. And human nature is such that if we're watching, let's say a football game uh, and Thursday night football game coming up and we know nothing about either team and we really don't care about either team. We have no real interest in the outcome. And then the announcers keep talking about how it is, they feel so bad for, for a team A because of what happened to the coach, the coach coming down with cancer. And then the, 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 the former Heisman uh, quarterback uh, ended up getting a compound fracture in the leg in last week's game. And, and the new quarterback uh, has never even taken a snap in the NFL ever before uh, and starts telling all these horrible stories about this one team when they were expected to win. And now the, the and you start to feel sympathy for the underdog. Right. I mean, that's, that's human nature. We feel for the underdog. And you start to root for the underdog. And that's what happens with a letter to the stranger. So when you attack a finger point blame, you end up causing the reader to feel empathy for the person you're attacking. Whereas when you tell a story in chronological order using visual imagery, that changes the, the whole thing. And I have um, uh, all of my 
parents when I had an active practice and all of our law students, when, when, when we taught specialty law, they had to read two books. One was called How to Argue and Win Every Time by Jerry Spence. Mm -hmm. And they also had to read Getting to Yes, all about negotiation strategy. And those books are referenced in our promotions advocacy book. And it's all about marketing and sales, telling a story so that the, so the person with power to change the outcome wants to, to, to go in your direction, wants to give you what you want. So that's the letter to the stranger. If, if uh, the original letter to the stranger is on our website, if, if anyone that's listening goes to the rightslaw.com website and simply in the Google search engine in the upper right-hand corner, types in the word stranger. That's all I have to do, just type in the word stranger and you'll find the original letter to the stranger that was done by Pete Wright and Janie Bowman. And then you'll find a bunch of other letters to the stranger, ones that were in actual cases that changed the outcome of the case. There's one case I had in the Sixth Circuit uh, up in your neighborhood, yeah. the, the, the James, Joseph James case uh, uh, versus uh, Upper Arlington and, and had to do with reading recovery and how it, uh, it damaged the kid who had dyslexia. And that uh, letter, uh, case went all the way up to the Sixth Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. And those two of the judges on that panel knew the letter inside and out and asked me so many questions about the letter and ended up uh, reversing the lower court's decision and ruled in our favor uh, and sent it back down for trial. It's powerful technique. So uh, to, to get a sense of it, just type in the word stranger on our website and, and, and you'll see the important thing is you don't blame or finger point, but you tell a story using visual imagery and don't have your own conclusions. Don't, don't have any, my, uh, uh, that, that my child has, has, a, uh, has a bad attitude towards school because uh, instead when my child came home from school yesterday, he slammed the door so loud you could almost feel the house shake and then he threw his books down on the floor said he hates school and he ran up to his room and slammed his room and you don't have to say my kid feels bad about school right. in other words you are describing visible observable behavior so that the reader comes to that conclusion you don't tell them the conclusion you don't give it that word the reader generates that and when they generate that in their own mind and in their own stomach and in their own heart, then that goes up into the brain. In other words, I market and sell to emotions that hits them in the gut, goes into the heart, and then it controls the brain, how they feel and think and how they decide. And, and that's the whole, the whole key, getting the person to, to really go with you uh, from an emotional uh, perspective. And the stranger then, Pete, becomes the judge, the administrative law judge or that ultimate audience, right? Exactly. Uh, when, when we write, our, uh, when, when I had my parents write the letter to the stranger, uh, I would tell them you have to visualize a, a nameless, faceless stranger. And because the letter is going to initially go uh, either to the director of special ed or the school superintendent, but it's going to be exhibit number one if we go up on appeal to the, to the United States District Court. And so the person has the power to change outcome might just be the director of special aid. You might win at that level not to go any further. I, I had a, a letter the stranger, a parent wrote, and um, the, the letter closed with something to the effect that Pete Wright is representing us. Uh, uh, in, it was a request for due process. Pete Wright is representing us. And um, we understand that a hearing officer has to be appointed within 10 days from the day of your receipt of this letter. At the same time, this letter is your, your authority to postpone appointment of a hearing officer if you believe it's worthwhile to contact Pete Wright and see if this matter can be discussed with him and resolved without a hearing. And so sure enough, you know, two days later, I got a call from the director of director special ed. I'm going to exercise that option if it's okay and, and not appoint a hearing officer and let's go out and have lunch. And I went out and had lunch with him and with the school board attorney. We had some glitches in it. And um, 
Uh, but eventually, uh, uh, we prevailed. Uh, it, so you know, it, was, it, it impacted the director of special ed. He saw the case from a different different perspective from how he had seen the case previously. He told me, he said, I had no idea. I had no idea the parents had gone through this and had gone through that. I, right. I, I wish I had known. And you know, I tell parents all the time when I'm advising them about the letter to a stranger, because I actually have them printed from your website. Um, and what I tell them is, you know, you're going to feel like you've told this story, but when you write it, you've got the opportunity to take the emotions out of it and to really tell the story in this different format that Pete really describes well in this document. Um, and then you also have the opportunity to put it all in one place, to tell it in sequence in one place so that it really tells the story. And it's not you going on a Monday and then going the following Thursday and then going six months later. It's all in one place. And really we as attorneys and this director of special education and superintendent and, and the district's attorney, what we are lots of times looking for is what we're up against, how somebody would testify in court, what kind of documentation somebody's going to have in court, that kind of thing. And when they get something that's sequential and organized and really lays it out in that empathetic manner, they think, oh gosh, well, we better come to the table here with some kind of agreement because we are up against somebody that really knows what they're doing. And that's effective advocacy. You know, that's a good way to stay out of court. You're writing it in theory, to maybe use as an exhibit, but as you say, Pete, the best way to stay out of court is to always prepare like you're going to court. And I think that's, that's why it's so effective. That's right. I mean, I, I told my parents uh, that that uh, we have, the best way to avoid especially a due process hearing is to assume it's going to happen and prepare for it, and that it's going to end up in federal court. Because if we win, I told my parents, the school is going to appeal it. Mm -hmm. to the U.S. District Court. If we went to U.S. District Court, they're going to appeal to the Fourth Circuit. And vice versa, if we lose at the first round, and I think we should go forward with it, I'm going to expect you to, to give me con permission, consent, to file in U.S. District Court. And if we lose at the U.S. District Court, I'm going to expect you to give me permission, if I think it's worthwhile, to go forward to the U.S. Court of Appeals. And that's what actually happened in that James case. We lost it every single round. We lost it to due process. We lost it review. We took it to U.S. District Court. We lost there. We took it to the Sixth Circuit and they reversed and sent it back. Um, and so uh, the best way to, to avoid trial is to assume it's happening and prepare for it. And you increase the odds it will, you increase the odds of settlement. Totally. Right, right. I, I, and that's a beautiful way to approach it. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about communication because that's kind of what I'm preaching all the time is communicate, communicate, communicate. And what I like to talk about is communicating throughout the year, not just at that annual IEP meeting, because, you know, most families, I don't know if it's the majority statistically, but a lot of people tend to have on average one IEP meeting per year, just that annual one. Of course, if it's every three years, they've got a triennial evaluation and then they might have two IEP meetings. But in general, people aren't having meetings, you know, more frequently throughout the year. Um, but I like to preach how important it is to communicate with the IEP team as a, as a whole, various parts of the IEP team, the teachers, the related service professionals, et cetera. And I know you feel the same way. So um, can you elaborate a little bit on the importance of communication between parents and school throughout each school year? That, that's really what it is all about. It's, it's communication and relationships. 
when when my parents had the ability to do it, and not all parents do, especially if you have two parents, a working family, both mom and dad are, are working, but where you had the ability to do it, I would encourage my parents to get involved with the school, even doing uh, you know do a home mother kinds of things or whatever else. Be readily involved with with the school, with with the um, uh, in that in that classroom, and drop by and have contact with the teacher, meet with them from time to time. And one other thing that I always had my parents do when they had an IEP meeting or a triennial or reevaluation session, or even just the, the, the uh, uh, what is it, the, the, uh, the meet the teacher at night at school, bring food. Because, you know, in sales, and again, I tell my parents, this is sales and marketing, and you are into persuasion. So when you bring food, that's what sales representatives do with all kinds of companies all the time. They take the person out to lunch, out to dinner, or they bring a treat. But when you bring food, there's something about that that just changes dynamics. And it's hard to be angry at someone to, who, who uh, is doing this. The other thing that uh, uh, with regard to the uh, communication is that, I, as I said, I made my parents, they had to read these two books, by the, one by Jerry Spence and also getting DS. And the uh, the book by uh, in getting to yes, it talks about how important it is for you to understand how they see the problem, what's their perception of the issue, and then what are their emotional beliefs, or or maybe like just their, their intellectual beliefs. What are their beliefs about about the issue, and what is it that they are afraid of if they give you what you want, and uh, what is it that they, that, what are their interests? What do they really, really want? So when you understand those four things from the perspective of the other person, you don't agree. You don't agree at all. They're dead wrong. But at least you understand you know, what, what uh, their perceptions are, what their beliefs are, what their interests are, what their fears are, and you verbalize back to them. Now, I want to be sure that, that I, I have a clear understanding. This is what you are afraid of. This is how you feel about it. And if you nail it just right, you're right on the money with that. That reduces the polarization, boom, just like that. Yes. All of a sudden, their mindset is, oh my gosh, she understands. We don't agree. We don't agree one bit, but she understands. Holy yeah. cow. And that changes dynamics totally. And that's a whole part of effective communications because then they feel like, okay, we don't agree, but, but we, we are on the same page. <laughs> and, then, and then you build them that golden bridge. So you yep. build them their retreat strategy because you identify what their what their interest is, what their what interest they're trying to protect. So so often, and I think parents, I talk to parents about cost all the time. F fine. If cost is the interest that they're trying to protect, we have to strategize around cost. We have to find them money. We have to um, articulate our knowledge of how they should be using the money. We have to address the money. It's okay if that's their thing. It's okay if it's not a super ethical or morally correct um, kind of thing in your opinion. That's your interest that you're holding. That's your value. Um, but another interest that I think they hold a lot, Pete, that I have to talk to parents about a fair amount is teacher qualifications. You know, they'll say, well, I think that yeah. they don't have any, any um, confidence in their teacher. Okay, so then what, how can we strategize? What offers could we make 
to help to either empower that teacher or suggest a different teacher or a different program or you know something else so that they can protect that interest because if they know they've got a teacher that isn't confident or if they aren't confident in their teacher we've got to do something to empower that teacher um and so I think that's a really important, I'm glad that you brought that up in communication because I'm constantly mm -hmm. talking about getting to yes. Um, Cause those concepts are just, that's the key to it in my opinion. It really, it really is. I, I used to, before I, uh, uh, before I had the Carter case, before I had the Supreme Court case, um, I had a, a, a general practice and, and I did domestic relations work. And that's, of course, uh, you, I, I, if I recall, you do that too. And that's, yeah. that's one of the most difficult, hardest, and the most emotional areas in terms of both sides want to kill the other. And, and they both feel betrayed by the other. And there's a lot of similarities between special ed and domestic relations. But with domestic relations, I eventually became a divorce mediator. And uh, as a divorce mediator, uh, it, uh, it uh, what I found, I had a bunch of training. I had 40 hours of training. And, and, and the thing I found that worked, and this is what I was trained in, was you have to have each side verbalize to the other what their position is and why, and then have the other person repeat back what they heard. Mm -hmm. And the first three or four times, of course, they're in left field. Each one is going in the opposite direction. But eventually, um, you'll say to the person, well, now, uh, after they've said it about the third or fourth time, you know, I, and the other person repeats it, is that what you're saying? Yes, I can't believe. Finally, it took a, a lawyer, a mediator, but, but, but now he or she understands what I'm saying. But you yes. see, that then, all of a sudden, the anger, the, the, the feelings of, of betrayal, the polarization starts to dissipate and go by the wayside. You and once you, get those, yeah. once you get those four things, out on the table and the other person's able to verbalize uh, where the opposition is coming from and they're on the money, but they don't agree, but they're on the money, then uh, the whole thing gets, gets the emotions out of it. So Pete, what I do in divorce cases, and, and I don't know if this is gonna ring true in the right household, but on Monday nights, there's Monday night football and there's Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> <laughs> whoever planned that was really dumb. <laughs> Because in a lot of households in America, that causes arguments. But I use that example to talk about interest-based negotiation. Because, you know, like, and the reason I do it is because, you know, everybody kind of fights for the TV room. So, like, I want to watch Monday Night Football. Well, I want to watch Dancing with the Stars. Well, I want to watch Monday Night Football. Who's more important, right? But if you ask the question, why do you need, okay, so now it's 2020, we have DVR. Why do you want to watch Dancing with the Stars? Well, because at work, at the, at the water cooler, every Tuesday morning, we sit and we talk about Dancing with the Stars. Do you talk about Monday night football at the water cooler at nine o'clock in the morning on Tuesday? No. Okay, well, then you can watch Monday night football on Tuesday night on DVR. And I have this interest in this socialization that I get with Dancing with the Stars. Um, and so we talk about like why there's an interest and in, in how we can meet the interests with creative out-of-the-box negotiation and you know it's silly i've never had that come up in real life i probably my husband and i were probably arguing one day and i was like i'm gonna start using this <laughs> i don't think that would work for you because um I, looking at your photos of you on your, uh, your website and the podcast you are already dancing all the time so you don't need to watch a tv show and i suspect <laughs> that the, uh what we were talking about beforehand and bicycle trips that you're more inclined 
to want to watch Monday Night Football. football. You're right. I watch the football. And actually, I have a laptop on my lap anyway, so I don't really care what I'm watching. <laughs> <laughs> Usually by 8 or 9 o'clock at night, I'm kind of, I'm diving back into work and ready to pass out. So you're right. <laughs> That's kind of attendant to, um, to communication is um, parent advocacy. So that's your bread and butter. You have literally written the book on parent advocacy along with your beautiful bride, Pam. Um, and so I think, you know, kind of the, the question here, and you alluded to this in, in the beginning of our discussion is, why is it so important for parents to advocate? And I say that kind of with the caveat, Pete, that Parents that have children in special education, even if it's not a medical thing, even if it isn't a developmental thing that takes a lot of time with therapies and that sort of thing, we all have this added stress. And a lot of us do have medical and developmental diagnoses that we're also treating with outpatient therapies and tutoring and, and worries and stress that come along with that. Um, and so a lot of parents are simply overwhelmed. And Yet I value parent advocacy. You've obviously built an empire on parent advocacy. Um, and so I'd like for you to kind of elaborate on the importance of parent advocacy. I, 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 as, you were, just, as you were discussing that, I had flashbacks into my uh, practice and too often what would happen is a parent would consult with me and initial consultation. And I would be going through, I'd, I'd gone through the file ahead of time. I'd always go through the file before I met with the parents. Parent would consult with me and I would see that the kid was evaluated, we'll say three years, four years before. And the, the reading uh, score, the kid was reading, I had a, a standard score, we'll say of, of uh, uh, 85 in, in a reading comprehension. In other words, it was down to, at the, uh, uh, bottom 16% and then was tested three years later and now the standard score was 70. In other words, down to bottom 2%. And I would be talking with a parent and I would have seen that already prior to meeting with a parent and I would go uh, then th uh, through the reason why they wanted uh, to retain a lawyer, why do they want me involved in it? And probably uh, on a large number of cases, their reason for consulting me with, with me really had nothing to do with the fact that the kid went from the 16% to the 2% and really fallen off the radar. I mean, just it was, it was gotten much, much worse. They didn't see that. They didn't know that. And they were uh, wanting to uh, 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 do battle with the school district on, on another issue that uh, really wasn't as critical. Uh, and so then I would go through the test scores with them and they would see that and, and then they and I would actually teach them how to do the bell curve. And they would see that the kid had gone from, from, from the 16th percentile, right, down to the bottom 2%. And their anger would kick in. And, and, and you could just see them getting so angry. I had no idea. I, oh, and, and then they would shift. Be, this would all happen very quickly. They would shift into, I am such a bad parent. I should have known this before. I just can't believe how, how bad a parent. And they, Look what they've done. And then it would shift over to anger and want to go on the attack with the school district. But they hadn't really done a very good job three years ago when the kid was first found eligible and understanding really what advocacy is all about, understanding the data and how to what to document. And, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's all hit. And uh, so 
what parents have to do is you have to be the advocate for your kid from the beginning and, and really immerse yourself because if you do it now, when you first learn there are some issues, it's going to save you so much time later on. Because if you don't, uh, if you let it slide now, and so many parents are so relieved when the school says, we'll take care of things, you know, we'll take care of things. And uh, Pam and I are doing some binge watching of the TV show called ER. Oh, and, I love that show. Yeah, and so many times there'll be someone wheeled into the emergency room uh, and uh, Dr. Green will say to the patient, you're in good hands now. We're going to take care of you. We're going to take care of you. Just, 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 just you know, take a deep breath, breathe slowly. We'll take care of you. Everything's going to be okay. And I, and I keep thinking, you know, they're, they're, this is a mantra. They're always saying to everyone, as they get wheeled in the emergency room, and the blood's flowing everywhere. You know, and oh, we'll take care of you. You're in good hands now with Dr. So and so. And that's almost how they, they open so many of the initial contact between the doctor and the, and the, and the patient. And, and so many, I find so many parents buy into that. Now they know what's going on. Now we finally have. Uh, an understanding of, of, of what's happening and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And they, they let their guard down and they stop worrying about it. And then three, four years later, when they realize, oh my gosh, let my guard down, boom, things are so much worse now. You can't yeah. do that. You've got to, to uh, step into the process, understand the process early on and stay on top of it. And, and then you will not have to worry about it. Down the road, hopefully you, things will work themselves out down the road. Things will turn out great. Yeah, and a key to that, Pete, is empowering yourself with information, which yes. is why you wrote all those books, I'm certain, and it's why I've started this company, because as special education attorneys, we can only help so many people, I can only help so many clients, and I have to be physically with my clients in order to help them. So if parents take the initiative to buy some of your books, I mean, and I almost um, was flipping through while you were talking, but this might be my copy where I have the bell curve written. Um, because it, should be I was, the, it should be on the last page of your FIDA book. If, uh, if, you, if that was the one you had at the Columbus Conference. Okay. The back so that's what I'm wondering. I have so many different copies of it. I no. don't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Nobody explains the bell curve better than Pete Wright does. Um, and if you understand something as simple as the bell curve, if you understand something as simple as the continuum of placements in an LRE case or an inclusion case, you or an alternative placement case on the other end of the spectrum, you then have the the framework laid out that all you need is the advocacy skills in order to get what you think is appropriate for the child. Um, look, I just opened right to it. Here's here's one of Pete's books with the bell curve. And then go over two pages more, and there's an actual table uh, that has the scores. All of the percentage ranks, I guess. Oh yeah, here we go. Wow. Page ninety six. See, look at that. Now we're cooking, Pete. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, it's just the littlest bit of information. And that's what, when we were talking before the podcast, um, you know, I explained that um, when I do these, my video training courses, um, I explain them from a legal perspective. I go through the actual law and then we go through the IEP and the laws that are associated with the IEP because that's the only way that I know how to explain to parents what the child's rights are, what the parents' rights are, what an amazing place, what an amazing law that the parents actually have rights 
you know, I do divorce work. And they always say, well, I have rights to see my children. And I'm like, actually, the law is based on the child's best interest. You don't have a whole lot of rights as a parent. Um, you have rights to get their medical records, you know, but there aren't rights. But an idea, there are parent rights, which is really, really beautiful. Um, but so many parents don't take advantage of them and don't empower themselves with information in order to do that. And, you know, and then they do come to us frustrated and upset. And I understand that, you know, um, and I always tell them it is extremely overwhelming. I, I get it. I was overwhelmed also as a parent at some point and I'm an attorney and I was a teacher, you know, so I really empathize with how overwhelming it could be. Um, well, you know, if, if a person has rights and they don't protect their rights, either for themselves or their child, don't expect a court to step in and protect them on your behalf if you were unwilling to do it earlier on. And, and courts will frequently will make a reference to that. They had the right to do this, but they waived it by inaction. Thus, the court is not going to take a look at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, and that's the value of you having read so many cases literally tens of thousands of cases have entered your brain and you can assimilate information like that. That's, that's a good point, Pete. Yeah. Um, so I just was holding the book from Emotions to Advocacy, which you called the FIDA book. I'm forever going to call it the FIDA book now. <laughs> the blue cheese book or what kind of cheese is that? <laughs> yeah, like feta cheese. Right. Uh, I love it. So Pete, what's the, what's the gist of how parents can successfully collaborate with the school team, part of the IEP team without emotions? How do parents and school people communicate and collaborate taking the emotions out of it? The, the, the parent is the one that has to um, step up to the plate first on this. Uh, many times parents will uh, complain to me that um, Mr. Wright, you don't know my school district and, and um, this, this is what they do and they've been doing it this way regularly and I have done this and I have done that and they still do it. Um, so it'd be a waste of time for me to try to do X, Y, and Z. And so, I'll, so then I'll say, well, oh, in other words, you're telling me no matter what you do, they're not going to change. No, they're not gonna change, not gonna change at all. Uh, well, then if they're not gonna change um, and you, feel like you wasted your time and so you're not going to change how's the kid going to benefit what's going to happen it's just going to get worse and worse and worse yeah. and so i'll say to them they may be in the wrong but you are going to have to change the way you deal with them because most of the time when i i see that what the parent has actually done is they have gone on the attack to the school they they have hit them hard it caused the school to put the defenses up, put the walls up, and they stay up repeatedly, and the parent is hitting their head against the wall. So parents have to shift. And I tell my parents, and, I, and generally what happens is when parents came in to see me, they were angry, um, and, uh, and that anger spilled over at times in meetings, and, and school staff knew they were angry, and uh, and, and so there was distance and polarization. And so I would have to remake my parents' personality and image. And we'd literally do role playing in my office about how to become a merged personality of Mrs. Manners that had merged with the old TV show uh, Columbo, Peter Falk being the actor, uh, and also a little touch of Mother Teresa. 
And when they went to meetings and they projected this new personality and when someone took the attack on them, they acted as if they didn't realize they were being criticized and attacked. They were acting, I tell them it's okay to act a little slow, that you don't quite get it because then when you do that, they won't be expecting what's gonna happen down the road because right. they're gonna lower their expectations and it's okay to, to come across as you didn't realize you were, you were being attacked and you always smile graciously. You have that little uh, you know, Mother Teresa angelic look on your face. And what's gonna also happen is when that person that you are upset about is attacking you, you know something, that's their personality in meetings. This is not unique to you. Many other parents, if you were to talk to them will tell you the exact same thing about that person. And if you talk to other staff down the road when, they're, when, they're, when their defenses are not up, you'll discover that person is the same way. I, I had a, a, a case, I'll tell you about a case I had a uh, due process hearing and it was being held at the, um, uh, uh, at the middle school in the library. And uh, I, I think the school might've been out that week, might've been spring break or something. And the principal was, was one of the ones who had really stirred the pot and made things bad. And there was several things the principal was supposed to have done with regard to the kid and the IEP and so on. And uh, I had him on cross-examination and I said to him, you know, I spelled out X, Y, and Z and you didn't do that, did you? And the only answer you could give was, was no. And then I went to the next one and blah, blah, blah. And you didn't do that either, did you? No. And I went boom, 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 and about three or four things like that. And then I said, I have no further questions. And hearing officer asked opposing counsel, a follow-up redirect, uh, no questions. The principal, this again was in his building, in his library. He got up, and this was in the evening, it, was, it ran late, it was about eight o'clock in the evening. He got up and, uh, and, and the, and the uh, setting was a, a conference room table. And he was at one end, hearing officer was the other, and attorneys on the sides. Uh, and the door was to his back. He got up, took his chair, slammed it down, went out the door and gave it a forearm, it was one of these double doors that swing open, gave it a forearm shiver. So they went bam, 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 bam. And then he went out and the hearing officer said nothing, just there was silence. So the court reporter had nothing to put on the transcript. There was just silence for 30 seconds as the hearing officer just looked at the door. And then uh, he, he turned to opposing counsel and, and uh, said, uh, uh, the hour is late. Uh, do you uh, do I hear a motion to adjourn for the rest of the day? <laughs> yes, sir. I moved, and I, and I said, you know, second the motion, whatever. The case adjourned, and that was it. And I, the next morning, next next day, next day, I had lunch with opposing counsel, and uh, she said to me, Pete, I loved what you did to Doctor So and So there last night just before the hearing ended. I said, Wait, what, what do you mean? Just well, the way you you just nailed them to the wall. Now she is telling me how she loved what I did to her own witness. Yeah. And, and, I, and I said, uh, uh, you know, and then she said, Brooke, like, Pete, Pete, this is between you and me. We don't, don't share this with your clients. It's just between the two of us. I said, that's fine. It's between us. She says, but you know something? He is such a horse's ass. I have to go, I have to go to the board meetings with, with him uh, uh, at the school board and also in, in, in central office. And, you know, he treats everyone like that, that he believes that he believes beneath him. He is so demeaning to everyone. You know how he was to your parents in the IP meetings? He's that way to other building principals. I just can't believe why the superintendent hadn't fired him yet. Because uh, he is, he, I was so pleased to see him, see you chew him up and spit him out. That was so good. And that hit me, you know, because I'd known about this guy. That was his style with other parents. 
but I had no idea that was his style with everyone yeah. in central office in the board meetings. And I realized then once, once I had that little insight that as I looked at in, 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 the future, in future cases and I had people that were like that, this is their style. It's got not, and my parents would understand, this has got nothing to do with you. This is right. who they are, it's right. not you. Right. And when parents understood that, then their anger toward that person would go by the wayside because that's the way he or she was with everybody. You know, Pete, I, I have had similar experiences where special education directors have kind of walked me to the elevator and said, thank you so much. You really helped me to provide guidance to the teacher, or you really helped to shed empathy on this situation that I think my teacher, I've been trying to get my teacher to hear, and you framed it in a different way. Um, and I think that's true. And really, sometimes with some parents, you have to um, lead by example in order for them to really understand how to do that. Um, but the more we tell those stories, the more parents will understand that it, mm -hmm. in many cases, is not personal. Not um, so I'm yeah. looking, I want to um, have somebody, are you familiar with the Enneagram? It's no. Like, it's like Myers-Briggs. It's a personality testing kind of profile thing. There's nine different numbers and your numbers, um, every person in the Enneagram methodology has a number and then the number describes personality traits of yours. And I think it would be really interesting to have somebody come on the podcast and talk about Enneagram numbers and then communication at the IEP table. So, you know, this wow. person's a four. If you're a three, then you talk to this person this particular way. And, you know, this is the way that they're going to receive your personality. Because I do, you know, I'm really smiley and bubbly. And sometimes I have to come down and be um, more, like I'll wear a, a darker pantsuit, you know, to, to come down and be more, um, I don't know, logical and less kind of emotional and happy in a meeting um, because of the way that somebody's going to receive my delivery. I say the same words, but I have to deliver them differently and I have to dress differently and that sort of thing. So I think that's really important. And that's what this whole book is about, is really kind of that advocacy style piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay, so I, I think we have time to just do, I, I thought we talked about this on the phone. I'd love to do kind of rapid fire th the three hot topics that happen in my practice. Um, do, do we have time to do it, Pete, you think? Uh, hit me with it. Hit, hit me with something. Hit you with it. Okay, let's let's go. So I want to talk about um, three topics that are kind of hot topics. Um, the first one being least restrictive environment. So parents oftentimes know that least restrictive environment um, is the mandate. They know that it exists. They know that there's this continuum of placement, um, but they don't really know how to use it to advocate. So can you give? Some quick tips on least restrictive environment. The, look at the statute. Read the statute. It explains that the child is to be educated. And actually, I had it out. So let me get it back in front of me. Uh, here. 1412, 14, right, Pete? 1412 A5 um, in, in the statute. And let's see where. Uh, and it explains that um, to the maximum extent of appropriate children with disabilities, including children in public or private institutions or other care facilities are educated with children who are not disabled and special classes, separate schooling or other removal of children with disabilities from the regular educational environment occurs only when 
the nature or severity of the disability of a child is such that education in regular classes with the use of supplementary aids and services cannot be achieved satisfactorily. So that means you also have to look at the definition of supplementary aids and services, which is in, in 1401. And those two make it clear what it is. And, it, and there's a regulation. It's that, the next statute is in our book. Um, and it, uh, uh, it's on page 7273 in the, in the book and in a footnote that we have. So a lot of, we have a lot of footnotes uh, in there. And in a footnote, we reference the federal regulation that the child is to be educated uh, to, as close to the home school as possible, or as close to home as possible. And so many people don't realize the, the impact uh, of, of the supplementary aids and services and what has to be used. And there, there, and there are a lot of cases out there on LRE, least restrictive environment. And so I would tell the parent, you don't wanna go into the school and preach law. You don't wanna go into the school and preach the statute. Uh, but you need to understand what the statute says. You need to understand what the case law says. Read some of the cases that are out there about it and use the language without saying, quote, 20 USC 1412. Don't, don't do that, but just simply use all those words. And uh, so you're kind of marketing and selling that way. And that, that's kind of how to get the door open. And, um, uh, and then I would frequently have... Uh, Hopefully, in a scenario of that sort, I would have an expert witness who would be able to talk about how the child adapts so well in regular settings with regular ed peers, and that placing the child into a setting away from, let's say, a self-contained setting that is actually damaging and destructive to the child because of this, because of that, because people don't want to be involved in damaging a child, even though they think they're doing what's right and what's best. But if you have an outside person come in and help them see how that is damaging and how it is destructive, how it, 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 it damages self-concept and, and inhibits the kid's ability for growth, growth and, and social acceptance and social awareness and interaction with others, when you have someone come in and, and, and uh, help the, the IEP team understand that, then that's what markets themselves. And the regulation indicates that we should consider any adverse effects that could happen in either setting also. I think that's 334 um, CFR 300.115 that indicates that. And that's that reg that has so much information yeah. that you probably referenced in that footnote. So yeah, that's that's how I do it. I love that. All right. So rapid fire, we're talking about- So, so you want a one-liner response to, to a one-line question. Sorry, I gave you a book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, then I talk back to we. Uh, we aren't one line people. <laughs> okay. Okay. So behavior. So lots of children are not supported behaviorally at school, and if they aren't supported behaviorally, then their academics are not going to work. They're they are going to have trouble accessing their functional skills. Um, so if a child is not supported behaviorally at school, what are some quick steps that parents can take? Uh, they, they, they would want to ask the school to convene uh, a, a new IEP meeting. Prior to that, the parent needs to develop expertise in the IEP statute and specifically the part that talks about special factors. And that's in the development of the IEP. It's in 1414 D3. And those two words, special factors, are key words in case law. Courts, a number of courts around the country, there's been a big shift that I've seen in the past five years in case law and behavioral problems. 
courts are now saying that the, if the school district did not look at the special factors part of the IEP statute, and they, and, and let me kind of read what, what, what it, it says, that uh, the IEP team shall, it says mandatory, shall, in the case of a child whose behavior impedes the child's learning or that of others, they shall consider the use of positive behavioral interventions and supports and other strategies to address that behavior. So if the court finds that they did not pay attention to that statute or give it the, the time that it, it deserves, that means they didn't do an FBA, functional behavioral assessment, or they omitted some of the elements, the required elements of the FBA for that child. Thus, by either not having one or having an inadequate one, what flows from the FBA is the BIP, BIP, Behavioral Intervention Plan. So if, if the original data analysis of data, the FBA is faulty, then the BIP is faulty. And if the BIP is faulty, then obviously the kid did not receive FAPE. And if the kid did not receive FAPE, then the school district has to provide compensatory educational services from way back when they did the first or failed to do the FBA. And the compensatory services is not an hour for an hour, but instead it's to make up for what the kid would have done. So it may well require, let's, let's say, uh, it, let me shift over compared to speech language. It's easier to understand. Uh, the kid was supposed to get an hour um, three times a week and didn't get it. Well. Uh, for a year. So that, does that mean the kid gets another hour three times a week for another year? Well, the kid fall, fell further and further behind. So it may be two hours a week for two years. Who knows? So you, so you have to do a whole new evaluation to determine how much. And, it's not, and the school can't not determine the amount of compensatory aid. That has to be left up to the, to the judge or the hearing officer. They've taken that power away. School. Only you could have done an entire behavior seminar in that amount of time. That was impressive. I used to work in juvenile courts and juvenile training schools. I was a house parent uh, and then later a counselor in juvenile training schools. I, I worked with kids that had behavior problems who had, who had special needs and learning issues too. <laughs> I did with one. And that is, that's like a whole year's worth of experience for, for people. That was, that was impressive feat. Okay, so I know this one's near and dear to your heart. This is going to be our last thing of the day. And that is, I know, you know, parents of children that have specific learning disabilities, like dyslexia, dysgraphia, CAPD, um, SLDs. So they oftentimes struggle with eligibility before we even get into the IEP process, they have a really hard time getting their child's services to actually get that IEP. So what insight can you provide to help them get started on an eligibility discussion with their school? Well, with the, the uh, child with dyslexia, for example, if you look at the statute 1401, that's where all the definitions are. That's where the definition is of supplementary services I talked about a few minutes ago. And the definition of a child with a disability is in there. And there's also a definition of a child with a specific learning disability. And in that definition, it has in there that it includes things such as dyslexia. So the word dyslexia has been in the statute since 1975 when the law was first passed. And uh, what's happened is that way back since, since the beginning, and it still continues to this day, that there are some school districts that take the position that we, we don't um, uh, recognize dyslexia as, as a disability, it's a medical condition or come up with some other thing, but it's been in the statute since 1975. 
But I tell parents, you know, don't get caught up in that battle um, because uh, you, you're going to end up fighting a battle over issues of labels and not issues of educational needs. And you have to focus on what does your child need? Well, uh, with dyslexia, you need the child will typically need uh, structured literacy programs such as Orton Gillingham or, or Linda Mubell or, or uh, Susan Barton. And you talked about that in, in depth in one of your podcasts. I, I thought that was exceptional what, what you did there and how you explained that. And shift the focus over and say, well, regardless of what we call it, we know my child has severe problems with reading. And it might be manifested in the typical reversals of this, um, uh, or it wasn't solved, um, uh, letters P, B, D, and Q, those kinds of things, or left, right. Or it might be a more a dysgraphia kind of dyslexia where it's written language issues and the kids' language is all over the place, or even dyscalculia with arithmetic issues. And uh, if you wanna see if a kid has got some issues with dysgraphia, dyscalculia, ask the child to do a long division problem. I used to do that with kids in my office regularly. Uh, I said, you know, you, let, let's see uh, how, how you are. Um, how good are you with arithmetic? Oh, okay, okay. Well, what's 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 five times five? Oh, 25, okay, very good. Uh, 10 times 100, okay. Uh, and then I'll ask them a few more. And then I'll say, Here, here's a piece of paper. Uh, I want you to go ahead and do a, a, long, a division problem for me. And I'll make a simple one at first. And then I'll say, okay, now I want you to divide one, two, three into four, five, six, seven. And that's where you see it. Because when they do that, then everything slants this way, slants this way. Uh, numbers, the, the nines and the sixes get shifted uh, or rotated. And that's where you'll see a merger of dysgraphia, dyscalculia. And, and some people would say that's all part of the syndrome of dyslexia. And others would say, no, they're separate independent. I don't care <laughs> whether it's, right. it's, it's a merger of one. What's, what's the educational needs of the kid? That's the issue for me. And so then we have to focus on getting really good quality um, uh, remediation of sorts. And what's so sad is uh, that so many times I have found educators, even parents believe, well, my kid has dyslexia and my child can't read. Well, why can't your child read? Mr. Wright, I just told you, because my child has dyslexia. That means my child can't read. Uh, no, I don't believe so. Oh, yes, yes. And, and there's a, one of our letters to the stranger is a Brody letter to the stranger. The child was going into a high school level and a parent came to want me to uh, uh, force the school to provide an aid to sit beside the child at all high school classes to read what the teacher wrote up on the board and read the textbooks. And then the kid would dictate the answers to the person. The kid had never been taught how to read and hadn't been taught how to write and had an above average IQ, well above average. Right. And the parent was fighting for an aid. I said, that's the wrong issue. Your kid needs to learn how to, to read, write, spell, do arithmetic. And we ended up getting the youngster into Landmark School. Right. Uh, and the kid ended up going to college and doing great. <laughs> yeah. And he even, uh, on our website, is a letter, he, a story he wrote, the story of sitting beside his lawyer during the due process hearing, <laughs> James Brody. Uh, and that's fascinating. But so the, it, it, uh, the belief is, well, we're going to provide, uh, we're going to support the child, provide modifications and accommodations, and we're going to give the kid talking books. We're going to read everything aloud. We want to lower the kid's anxiety. Man, what, what you know, you are really damaging the kid with that approach. Teach the kid how to read, write, spell, do arithmetic. And, and so that's the, the focus. What has my kid got to learn to be able to make it in the real world with reading, writing, and spelling skills? Yeah, and you can do that very easily with an expert. So get an IEP, 
um, and go and then bring the, bring the person that did the IEE, the psychologist or whoever, into the meeting to describe that. And that is usually a really successful strategy. That's how I do it too. And, well, and one other thing, so often I have found that uh, a parent may be focused on if the child has cerebral palsy, child has autism, has Down syndrome, and the kid can't read. Right. Wait a minute. Yes, you can, can be taught. And I, I remember a parent in, in a uh, northern part of Florida who had learned all about Orton-Gillingham and had a child with Down syndrome. And she hired Orton-Gillingham tutor for the child. And this, this was like 15 years ago. And the kid was reading on age level, age and grade level. And the school district couldn't believe it. No oh, that's awesome. You know, as a, as a success story relative to that, I, my degree, my educational degree is in German, K to 12. So I did not teach, you know, elementary school, but my mom was a teacher. I always wanted to be a teacher. So I just kind of get pedagogy. And since my child's been home, we're recording this in November of 2020. So we're in the, it's still in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and so my child's been home largely since March. And with one-on-one -on -one instruction that is extremely consistent, he has a lot of repetition, and I can frame it just for him. You know, I've written books about his experiences. His reading has skyrocketed. And I'm not using, I actually bought Linda Mood Bell and tried to train myself, but his, it doesn't really suit his profile because it's so um, uh, question-based and he's not, he's, he needs somebody to direct him how to do it instead of explore mm -hmm. it on his own. Um, but he is just flourishing in this kind of wonky thing that I've done that isn't research-based, it's multi-sensory, um, but it's really going beautifully because I've just kind of looked at what works and I take data and if the data doesn't show improvement, then we switch up our strategies. Um, and so, yeah, that's the way I do it for SLDs also. And I agree, I don't really care what the diagnosis is. I care about how I can help the child. That's right, that's right. AIDS we need or what kind of SDI we need to get for the child. I've had some parents go through the Susan Barton training mm -hmm. and, and they end up becoming their kid's Barton tutor. Yeah. And just and had everything to 180 degrees and it gets taking off. Right. And they just rip through those Barton books, which is yeah. so exciting. That's awesome. Pete, you are such a fabulous resource to the special education um, community, parents, teachers, community members alike. Um, you've shared a lot of your um, information as to how people can reach you. Obviously, there's rightslaw.com. Is there any other um, resource that you want to share? Uh, I am not up to speed as you are with things like Facebook and uh, all these other things. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get up to speed on it, but uh, it, uh, I, I can't, it, uh, I really can't think of anything else off the top other than through our, our, our website. And it's not that I'm in a position where I can provide really good advice to a parent who has a, a presenting problem because I find so often when I do get an email from someone who's got an issue and, and they want me to give them direction on it. Well, it's like that parent that contacted me in the Brody, the, the Brody parent, Ms. Brody, and she wanted an aid um, for her kid going into high school. And that was the wrong question. And I find so many times that the, the question and the direction parents are going in is the wrong a question and the wrong direction, but I won't know that until I go through the kid's entire file. And in that scenario with Brody, I mean, I went through the kid's entire file and I saw the kid was evaluated way back in 
second or third grade had a high IQ, but was uh, uh, found eligible for the learning discipline reading, and, and yet they didn't teach them how to read. And so I find that I, uh, I, I'm almost reluctant to give advice because a parent uh, may go off in that wrong direction because I don't know all the facts. And to me, that becomes malpractice by me. If yeah, I don't know all the facts, it's like I'm a doctor, you know, and you got a stomach ache and I tell you, tell you go home, take, you know, take some uh, Alka-Seltzer uh, and ibuprofen uh, if, if Alka-Seltzer doesn't work, you know, and, and I don't do any lab work, any blood work. And, you know, I mean, that's malpractice out of space. <laughs> I, I feel... And I feel this. You know, I I get messages this, and I do the the same thing. But you've got that behemoth of a website that we've referenced, rightslaw.com. That is such a wonderful resource, as are all of the written published materials. And Pete, I think it's also worth mentioning that any of my audience would like to have you come do a training that you do trainings, particularly when it's safe to travel. Um, and I would endorse any of those as well as that ISEA. Um, seminar. So I um, I thank you for being here. You're such a wealth of information. And yeah, I'm going to give kudos to you though. Your website and the material you have on there is awesome. I'm really impressed. Uh, I, I was I, I'm really I, I, I'm very serious. I was so impressed. And I, I I've listened to a bunch of different podcasts. I said, my gosh, <laughs> why do you have me when you have this stuff down so cold yourself? Why do you have me talking about it? <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm gonna now I'm gonna be dancing all day. That's the ultimate. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> the too many photos of you, not too many. You do a great job on the website. You're dancing. <laughs> there's a lot of pictures of me. I, I agree, there's a lot of pictures of me. All right. Well, thanks. Great. So well, th thank you so much. I enjoyed it thoroughly.